Hey y'all, this is a preview to the latest premium subscriber only episode to Champagne Sharks. So what you're hearing is a small clip of a longer episode that is available over on patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. And it's available to premium subscribers who pay $5 a month. And if you want to hear the rest of the episode, go over to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and subscribe for only $5 a month. You get not only access to this episode in its entirety, but to the whole backlog of premium episodes, which at this point is over 100 episodes at this point. So it's a great deal. So without further ado, here is the preview, and I hope we. See you on the other side at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks where you can hear the rest. I feel like in the 80s and stuff and 90s, there was like hip hop and people who spoke in the voice of, you know, the regular Joe who were talking a lot of positive communal stuff. And I think that it's possible again, like like one thing about a Fred Hampton is that he spoke in a voice that sounded like your neighbor that sounded like the guy you grew up with you know in the streets of oakland and i think mm. that might be something that is very necessary like to cultivate voices that sound and look like um that's why chuck d was so important yeah chuck d but Jung- jungle brothers jungle a brothers, lot of uh, tribe. that's uh, why that's um, why they were they were very important. yeah yeah they were important for that reason and but this is the thing when I say people are going from themselves and i use nipsey hustle as an example i'm not talking about the individual i'm talking about that community you know what I'm saying? Because when you live in a community like that or where I grew up, I'm from Inglewood, California, but I grew up in Portland. So I grew up in the Columbia Villa. We all feed each other. So this is our mentality. community. So excuse me. Yeah, yeah I, so, I, I, I'm 100 percent. That collect yeah. that sense of uh, collectivism, man, that, exactly. that village mentality. We, well, yeah. we, we're all feeding each other because we're all from the same projects. We're all from the same <laughs> neighborhood. We're not saying that I'm going to eat over all y'all. What I am saying is that this is our community. You're coming into my community and telling me something when you're not even acknowledging the history and the trauma and the things that have happened in my community. So you want me to drop what I'm doing right now for me to do something different. I see it, but I think you're creating a straw man, and I, and I'm not quite sure why. I mean, unless I and I'm not taking this personal. Um, that when I, I don't know about the organizers that you have dealt with, but an, a successful organizer isn't going to come into a community and tell the people there, "This is what you got to do. You got to drop what you're doing and follow my way." A successful organizer isn't doing that, whether whether they're organizing for socialism or whether they're organizing for something else. A successful organizer, one of the things that they would do in coming into a community would be to try to find out, first and foremost, who are the real leaders in the community. And by real leaders, I don't mean the people that have titles. I mean to find out who in the neighborhood do people listen to. And that's who the organizer wants to talk with. Those are the people that you want to get to know. That's what a successful organizer does. I mean, someone that comes into a neighborhood and just starts running the jibs. I mean, they're not going anywhere unless they get thrown out on their ass. But if you're going into anything, any new environment, you're worn, you want to find out, you want to understand the community, you want to understand who the real leaders are in that community, and you go from there. I mean, there's an example that I often give about when I was in the shipyard. And there was, um, there was a, a black social club that was made up of a, a lot of the shipyard workers and some other people. But the leader of the, of the 
social club who was a shipyard worker. His name was Clarence. And one of the things that I discovered is that even though Clarence did not participate in the union very much, he went to union meetings only when he had to, um, never held a, a position. What you found is that when you would talk to other brothers and sisters in the shipyard about an issue, frequently they would, they would say, have you talked to Clarence about this? What, what does Clarence think? And that was the indicator, although I didn't really understand it at the time, but that was the indicator that he was the person that was looked to as the leader. Wait, so who was Clarence exactly? He was just another worker. He was just another brother who happened to be the head of a social club, but he was someone that was respected. We've got people like Clarence in every workplace, in every community. And unfortunately, what often happens is that we think of leaders as people with titles, reverend such and such, imam such and such, doctor such and such, such and such esquire. You know, there are people that have titles, and then there are people that actually have followers. So when you're doing real organizing, one of the things you want to do is you want to figure out who are the real leaders? Who are the people that have followers? Those are the people you want to talk with. Those are the people you want to listen to. Those are the people you want to win over. So, so it's not about telling people what to do. It's really about making contact with the people at the base. I think something else is making sure those people have a voice afterward, too, because I think that's another fear that happens is this idea that, you know, um, we help organize or do whatever once um, things actually get into place. Are we are we going to get discarded or do we get a place in the leadership? And that's right. That's how do you actually, reassure yeah. people on that? How do you reassure people on that, that they're not just going to be used to uh, be like um a Negro with Negro whisperers to the guy in the street, and then and then once you know things happen, uh, they're getting tossed away because because now we got what we needed. You know, that's that's it what always a, it was a really right. it was a really good example of that is uh, Barack Obama. Like during mm. his, uh, his, uh, his his primary campaign, um, you know, he was like throwing off like little references to like uh, the the Black Power movement and to the Civil Rights Movement. Um, he would he would talk about like for example like uh, you know Hillary is uh, trying to hoodwink you and he builds up this gigantic movement and then he gets elected president and this movement that he had built up he essentially just let the uh, the 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 DNC the Democratic National Committee he just let them strangle the movement in the bathtub. So I think that that's absolutely correct and that there's some very important lessons from that to answer this question. So first of all, people aren't organizing on behalf of the organizer. The organizer is there to help people get organized, to achieve the, the, the issues and concerns that they have, but also to introduce new information that people may not have. Very basic point. So the second thing is that that means also building organization. Because what, what happens is when you don't build organization, then it's very easy for everything to be taken from you. So you got to build organization and those leaders that I talked about, those clearances, they need to be energized to take to, to play a major role in, in running those organizations. Um, I mean, the example of the Obama phenomena, the Obama for America, as you said, basically got turned over to the DNC. Now, one of the things that, it, one of the mistakes there is that Many of the people that were involved in that, and I've seen this happen before, 
they did not revolt against this move, which they could have. The, the more activist members of Obama for America, when they were told this is being turned over to the Democratic National Committee, in fact, could have said, the hell with that. We're, we're not being turned over to anybody. And that would have created a very interesting <clears throat> political and organizational crisis. But this, unfortunately, because we are at people in these in capitalist societies, we've been brought up in a hierarchical environment. We, we frequently defer to authority, even the strongest of us. Something like that happens and we, we get powerless. Not all the time, but very often. And I think we have to learn from that. Something else I wanted to ask, but at first, I feel like I've been talking well. Uh, Ken, Andre, Mario, do you have anything you want to um, ask? Uh, uh, one question I wanted to ask was uh, to expand a little bit more on how the Black Power movement um, not came by socialism, but basically like how it framed itself through socialism. Because I kind of feel like what we're left with are just like the aesthetics of Black Power. Right. So yeah. like Beyonce does a halftime show at the Super Bowl and, you know, she has like backup dancers that are like evoking the Black Panther aesthetic. But what we call like resistance or revolutionary politics now is not actual revolutionary politics. Like people call like Anything, everything revolutionary. But... Yeah, exactly. Like it's just like this sort of like postmodern, like, you know, because I feel it's revolutionary, therefore it is revolutionary. And it's I, I feel like we've kind of gotten away from the actual like politics, the actual material conditions, the actual struggle, whereas like everybody's mm -hmm. individual struggle is a struggle, but we've forgotten what the collective struggle is. So if you could like mm -hmm. take us back to um, how that movement framed itself through socialism, but in a way that was contextualized uh, through black power and not through trying to follow somebody else's definition of socialism. So in order to answer that, you have to recognize that the Black Freedom Movement always had major divisions within it. But there was a certain kind of unity that existed through about 1966 because of the fight for uh, civil rights and voting rights. Now, in the aftermath of that, there were a number of things that happened. One of the things was the development of Black Power as a very broad movement that was challenging the notion of integration and desegregation in some cases, challenging uh, and, and um, the notion of nonviolence. So that was one thing that was going on. But the other thing that was going on, which is something we, referred, we referenced early in this discussion, was that Martin Luther King himself and some of his key associates had come to the conclusion that a, a sort of new sort of politics needed to be elaborated and that that politics needed to fuse racial justice with um, economic justice with what we would now probably call global justice. And it was quite left-wing. And, and I was a kid at the time. I was just becoming active. Um, but a lot of us didn't appreciate how radical King was because we were looking at symbols and we were looking at this whole thing about nonviolence in a very one-dimensional way. Um, 
So that was one piece of the equation. Then this thing develops called black power, but black power ended up very quickly being defined in a number of different ways. So you had people like Roy Innes and Floyd McKissick that started talking about black power was black capitalism. And these are people that moved steadily to the right. They were very militant in their rhetoric, but they soon ended up moving into Richard Nixon's camp. Um, and, and they were flying the red, black, and green, but they were basically saying, you know, black capitalism equals black power. But then you had another element of the, of the movement that was mounting a radical critique of U.S. society. Um, you actually had a couple of elements. You had those led by people like Ron Karenga and Amiri Baraka at the time that were ad- advocates of what was called cultural nationalism. And they were very militant, but very sort of inward looking. Um, and then you had uh, a, move, a segment of the movement represented by groups like the Black Panther Party, the Republic of New Africa, the Revolutionary Action Movement, that were revolutionary nationalists, at least in the beginning. And they were, they were saying that there needed to be some sort of fundamental transformation of U.S. society. Many of these individuals started looking around the world to try to understand actual examples, but also to understand the theory of radical change. And they started coming across people like Nkrumah, Mao Zedong, Ho Chi Minh, Amilcar Cabral, uh, Ahmed Ben Bella, and others who were of color and who were saying that it wasn't enough to break with colonialism or to become independent. It wasn't enough to advance uh, Black consciousness, depending on how one defined that. That one had to actually get at the get to the system, get to the root of the system, and so the Black Power movement ended up going in itself in multiple directions. So you had one element that basically moves towards Black capitalism, quite explicitly. You had the cultural nationalists, who then uh, splinter. You had the revolutionary nationalists, like the Panthers, and and then you also had. Um, uh, other black leftists who were not necessarily in the black power movement, but were very radical. Um, uh, one just died, uh, Jack O'Dell, who, if you're not familiar with his work and life, it'd be really worth looking at. Um, but he was very close to King and he became uh, Jesse Jackson's chief international person. And <clears throat> he was the editor of uh, Freedom Ways magazine which was a major black left-wing magazine in the 1960s. So you had all of these different currents that existed. And unfortunately, the way that history is often told, you think the civil rights movement was monolithic or the black power movement was monolithic, and it was anything but. Um, The one thing that I deeply regret is that in, in growing up, I had a great love for Malcolm X. I don't regret that at all. But what I the mistake that I made is that, like many other people of my generation and of subsequent generations, I started to look at Malcolm as a saint. And I also didn't fully appreciate the radical significance of King. But over time, my views on both changed. And I think I became, I don't know how to put it, started to look at them both as 
really great human beings who had strengths and weaknesses uh, that represented different currents in the movement, but they weren't as antagonistic as I had thought at the time. All right. So that was a preview. If you like what you hear and you want to hear the rest of the episode and a hundred more episodes, then by all means, go over to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. Take care, y'all.